Amen. Please be seated. Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 26. I could only fit half the passage on your outline, so you will need to have your Bibles open. Genesis 26, first book of the Bible, the 26th chapter. We have come to the story of Isaac. It's really just an overview of Isaac's life. Isaac, compared to Abraham and then Jacob after, really kind of uh, doesn't have uh, much said about him. It's just, But it's important what is said, of course, because he is um, the covenant heir. He is the one that God uh, places a covenant promises upon after Abraham dies, and then he brings that covenant headship onto the next generation. Uh, this is the story that unfolds. That's the real reason for chapter 26, is to make no mistake that he is the heir apparent to the covenant blessings of God, who would uh, bear the seed through his wife, Rebecca, who would end up becoming the Messiah eventually. This is continuing the story of redemption that the Bible tells. Now, the broad sweep of Isaac's life is contained here. It goes back in time a little bit from the last chapter, just before they had Jacob and Esau, and then tells the story, kind of on a big overview of his travelings. And you're going to find some familiar familiar sounding stories here. But the main point is Isaac is the heir of the covenant made with Abraham. And as the history of salvation moves towards the coming of Christ, there are all these individuals that are part of that continuation. And these individuals are by God's divine choice, not because they did something that deserves it, which is a message we consistently need to remember that Our knowledge of Christ, our resting in Christ, our recognition of him as Messiah is because of God's divine favor, not because we're so smart that we figured it out or there's something about us that uh, gains merit towards God. It's all of his divine favor. And Isaac is yet another example of this. I will read now God's holy word, chapter 26. And since uh, the chapter's long, I'll make some... uh, comments as we go to explain what's being said in the passage and then move to the sermon after we pray. But please follow as I read Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So Isaac moves to the south now where there's more fertile ground to water his flocks. He was both a herdsman, and a farmer. And he needed better water supply, so he moves to the south, no doubt intending to go to Egypt. That's where most people would go during a time of famine. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So by way of a theophany, an appearing of God, God appears to Isaac to stop him from continuing down to Egypt. He does not want Isaac to leave the promised land. He tells him to stay in that part of southern Israel, the land of the Philistines that Abraham had spent time in. Water your herds here while the famine is happening in the rest of Canaan. And then God renews the covenant he made with Isaac's father. Look at verse 3 now. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. 
For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to, your, to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and commandments, my statutes and my laws. Almost verbatim restatement of the Abrahamic covenant now made to Isaac. Isaac is the clear heir to the covenant of God's grace with Abraham. It should be noted, for all Isaac's foibles, and they are many, he obeyed God here and stayed. He was an inconsistent man, but he was a man of faith, and that faith produced obedience. Back to verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Now what comes next is eerily familiar, you will see. The apple does not fall far from the tree, as the saying goes. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Here we go again. The third time, twice with Abraham, now with Isaac. Verse 8, When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, to be clear, it's not just laughing here. The translation of the Hebrew word is difficult. You'll read in other translations good attempts to explain what this means. It had to do with a playful flirting, even a touching or a caressing of Rebekah. He knew this was not the man's sister. The King James says he was sporting with Rebecca. It says he was showing endearment to Rebecca in the New King James. In the NIV, he was caressing Rebecca. What they were doing was evidencing that they were not mere brother and sister, as he had told Abimelech. Now, with regard to the name Abimelech, we aren't to think this is the same Abimelech. Abimelech means my father the king. It's a dynastic name, sort of like Pharaoh would be. So this is a, a... very likely a different Abimelech, many years later, several decades later. But the same situation. Now back to verse 9. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife And you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Abraham and Isaac were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. But in these instances, they certainly were not. Verse 12, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Remember, a famine's going on, a drought's happening, and yet he is reaping a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. God blesses Isaac even though there's a famine that's affecting everyone around them. All wealth comes from God, and Isaac is a picture of this. And this irritated the Philistines, so they made moves to try to push him out. Verse 15. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. We'll remember back to that. 
And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esak, which means strife, because they contended with him. Now, common wells were dug in order to get to a depth that tapped into the groundwater level. So if it rained, the water would go into the earth to a certain level. You would dig down to that level to access that water. That's how most wells were done. But when there's not much rain, you have to dig deeper and deeper and deeper to get to that water level. But if you found a spring feeding it, that's the jackpot of wells. And that's what happens. This is the kind of blessing that comes upon Isaac. Clearly not because he deserves it. And the Philistines are jealous. He has a spring-fed well now that he can keep watering his herds with and watering his fields with. So a dispute happens over these wells as they're being dug. Verse 21. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called that name Sitna, which means opposition or hostility. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called that Rehoboth, which means space or room, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. We take for granted access to water like this. And he highlights it with these memorialized names. Verse 23, From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant's, servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. God appears to Isaac a second time, reassuring him of his intentions to honor the covenant with Abraham through him. That's the main point of chapter 26. Isaac is the heir of the covenant. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said that we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact, a covenant, between us, between you and us, and let us make covenant a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So God is granting Isaac some security in Canaan. Now, again, Isaac, like Abraham, only owns a cemetery. That's all the family owns still. But God's keeping him safe in the land of promise, the land of Canaan. Verse 30. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. Isaac, like Abraham, was constantly on the move, but God provided for him 
in every place that he landed. Verse 32, that same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. There's a closing statement now at the end of the chapter, and it's a sad statement, and it sets up chapter 27. Chapter 26 is about Isaac as the heir of the covenant, but it also sets up what we will study now for the chapters to come. Isaac was heir to the covenant, but he did not serve well as a father or as a husband. He had moments, but most of them were poor, especially in his father, his being a father. And the last two verses explain this, or at least start to shed light on this. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Remember the care that Abraham took about who his son married. No such care with Isaac and Esau. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please bless this reading of your word and the study that now follows. May we see your hand of providence once again at work to maintain your covenant promises. May we see your faithfulness from one generation to the next. Even despite our great frailties that we see manifested in Isaac, we all too well know these weaknesses ourselves, these inconsistencies, these contradictions in us, these failures about us, but yet you continue to keep your promises. You show us your favor for the sake of Christ. You are a God who keeps covenant for a thousand generations. In Christ's name, amen. Last week I took a short trip to western New York where I am originally from. Uh, The purpose of my trip was to visit some family and friends, several of whom who have been battling various trials in their lives. Uh, Some have been very sick, and I have not been back for some years. Uh, One of my cousins now lives in the house that the the matriarch of my family um, used to live in before she died some 20 years ago. She's been living there since, my cousin that is. And she's been very sick as well. Uh, My father used to visit his sister, my aunt, many times at that house and would sit at that kitchen table and the way it would work in an Italian family is you sat while she talked and you listened. Now, you know me, I like to talk, but I usually got very few words in with my Aunt Mary. I would just sit down at, I have several Aunt Marys, by the way, like four, and that's not a joke. Uh, don't judge. But anyways, I sat down at the table, and, or my dad would do this, and he would listen to his sister tell all about what's going on with the family, what's going on about life, asking him this, asking him that, and so on. That would happen for years. My dad would stop by, sometimes on his way home from work, to go see Aunt Mary to kind of check in with her. Like I said, she's like the matriarch of the family, and there were 13 kids all together over the course of time. Then when I started going away to college, I would have to go back. I say I have to. I mean, I wanted to, but I would go check in with Aunt Mary, and I'd sit at the kitchen table, and the same thing would unfold uh, like it did with my father. Um, She died almost 20 years ago, and I haven't actually been to that house. I've seen my cousins in other places, but I thought I would go visit my cousin because I knew she was very sick. Uh, For six weeks, she spent time in the hospital for various things. So I walked in the house, and even though the decor of the house looks different, the kitchen looks untouched, and it's the same table. The table's 50 years old plus. And I sat down at the chair and started talking to my cousin, and we're talking at the table, and she's, that doesn't remind me exactly of my aunt, but she's very much like her. And so she was telling me this and telling me that, and at some point she pauses and giggles a little, and she looks at me sitting there, she goes, Tony, I feel like I'm looking at your father. Because it just reminded her, I remind her of my dad. 
which is very often the case. Now, it's interesting because it hasn't been too long now uh, since my own son, my oldest son, uh, has been an adult. And there's been several times where people in the church or other people tell me, you know, I heard your son talking and I thought it was you talking. I could hear him talk. And then one day he was at our house and I heard him talking and I thought I was talking. It was that, it was that, it sounded brilliant, by the way. I was like, this is smart. What this guy say? No, it wasn't like that. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree in many cases. And you know this is true of your own children. Moms and their daughters, sons and uh, dads and their sons, their children and their parents. Often our children are a mix of us, of course. Um, they grow up watching us. Um, they model much of what we show them. This is the truth about human life. And we see it really on display with Abraham and Isaac in a way that may cause us, when we're not more mindful, to shake our head a bit until we realize how common this is, how true it is in our own lives. That's what we see unfold right before our eyes. But despite those flaws that are picked up from, I, from Abraham, that Isaac picks up, we still see God keeping his promise to flawed Isaac because he's made a covenant promise to Abraham before. And the promise to Abraham wasn't made because Abraham deserved it. It was all because of the good pleasure of God's will to work out the message of the gospel that would come for Jesus, the Messiah. Isaac was an important part in that chain of individuals who would continue the covenant promises until Christ would come. God keeps his covenant promises from one generation to the next, even with the reality of like father, like son. First, I want you to notice that we see quite a bit of the likeness between Abraham and, their, and the new heir of the covenant, his son Isaac. Isaac shared a like faith with Abraham. He was inconsistent and contradictory like we all are, but he had a genuine saving faith. We also see a like parenting approach from Abraham inherited by Isaac and the problems that come with this. We also see a like response in the time of crisis. Isaac does the same thing his father did. We see a, a conniving, uh, a cowardice about his role as a husband, just like his father had. We see an unrest with the people around him, just like Abraham had. But also we see something that concludes the story. He shared undeserved blessings from God, just like his father. Now let's look at this briefly this morning, the like faith he shared with Abraham. You remember Abraham in Genesis 15, God brought Abraham out outside of his tent and said, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, Abraham. And then the passage says, and Abraham believed the Lord. He trusted in God's promises and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the gospel. God promises that your sins can be forgiven by Jesus' work on the cross. You believe that promise, and that's counted as your righteousness. Jesus' righteousness, his payment, is counted as your righteousness. Same gospel from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And this is what Abraham believes, God's promise, and it's counted to him as righteousness this genuine faith that he has. Then we come to Isaac. Isaac, in chapter 22, 
when he's being led up to Mount Moriah just as a teenager, he shows this faith when he realizes as he's walking up that there's no sacrifice, that his father doesn't have a lamb. He says, my father. Abraham says, here I am, son. And Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Even knowing this, his aged father, who he could easily run away from, teenaged Isaac, went together still with his father, knowing and becoming clear and clear what was going to happen. He shows faith in his father, who shows faith in God, and they together obey God. Remember when Isaac was waiting for a wife, um, the whole story unfolds where the servant goes and finds Rebekah, and as they're coming back, the passage in Genesis 24 says, Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. And they met after that. But he was meditating. He was waiting. He was thinking about God's promises, no doubt. Then when they were married and waiting for a child that wasn't coming quickly, in Genesis 25, the chapter before the one we're looking at, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. We see the faith of Isaac that was in his father, Abraham. We see when God speaks to, to Isaac, he responds with worship. He builds an altar. There is a living faith that Isaac has. Yes, he's inconsistent. Yes, he's sinful. But he's a believing sinner. Uh, Or a sinful believer. That's what we are. But we believe, and he believes. For all the weakness of faith that we may have, the most common way that people become Christians is as they follow their parents' faith. We know our flaws, but we also know that we're the main catalyst for our children to come to know Christ. I was doing some research for a talk I was giving to school parents about how important it is for there to be, the the family and the churches have to really be working together for discipleship. Our school is only meant to help complement those. And one of the areas of study that came up over and over is the number one indicator as to whether a, a, a child will grow up to continue to go to worship every Sunday is whether their parents have their them at worship every Sunday. I mean, if they're inconsistent, they will be usually less consistent than the inconsistent they grew up with. But for parents who bring their children to worship every week, those children are, by and large, the ones that keep going. That's the number one indicator, more than Christian schools or youth groups or other things that we might note that we think are trying to help our youth grow closer to Christ. Those are important. It's bringing them to worship every week. As parents bring their children Their children lay hold of that faith that their flawed parents have. They know you just like we know each other. That's why we go through the liturgy. We confess our sins together, parents and children. Now we also see some parenting problems unfold in the life of Isaac that come really from the example of Abraham and just because they're sinners too. Remember back Abraham's issue with Ishmael and Hagar and the difficulties and how that unfolded. Great strife arose because of the way those two sons were parented. Difficulties for the children, both of them. Difficulties for their mothers. Difficulty for the families, not just for them, then for for generations that followed. Abraham was not a model parent in that regard, and the apple did not fall far from the tree. In Genesis 25, 
Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So clearly stated, Isaac favors Esau, Rebekah favors Jacob, and that parenting model leads to all sorts of strife that we'll see unfold in the chapters that follow this one. In this chapter, the last two verses are so tragic when you read them. Esau was 40 years old. He took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife. This is something he should not have done. He should have married in the faith, not with the Hittites. Just the way Abraham was so concerned for Isaac. But because of his favoritism to Esau, because his appetite, and he liked what Esau provided for him, he overlooked, no doubt, these things. And also took another wife, Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. What came of this? They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Favoritism with children wreaks havoc on the children. Wreaks havoc on marriages and on family. Do you have a favorite child? Do you know someone else who has a favorite child? I always tell AJ, he's my favorite oldest son. Willow is my favorite daughter. But you know what I mean. Real favoritism can tear apart families and impact generations. And Abraham, we see this toward Isaac and Ishmael and the way he treated them. Then Isaac towards Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob towards the brothers and Joseph. You see, it keeps perpetuating. That's what happens in families often. We also see something alike between Isaac and Abraham with regard to the response to a crisis when it occurs. In Genesis 12, now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Remember, Abraham was told, this is your land. And without consultation, uh, he went down to Egypt right away and got into other troubles. His crisis was, mode was to fly, to, to flight. That's what he did. Now we get to Isaac. There was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. This is in the first verses. He went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So he's moving his way down to Egypt. He has the same exact instinct. But the Lord stops him in this case. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. The point is, his first instinct was to run when the crisis came. No one really knows what they'll do in the time of a crisis, so the development or buildup or preparation for it is so important. You can plan and you can plan and you should, but when the emergency arises, we can surprise ourselves by the choice we make in a crisis moment. We could disappoint ourselves in those moments. It was Mike Tyson who famously said about a boxing match that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. When the crisis arises, then everything that you... So this is what we see unfold for sure in the life of Isaac, and we saw it in Abraham's life too. Also, we can't help notice this other similarity. I heard it as I was reading it. This conniving about his wife. Really, frankly, this very low view of his own wife. The gift that she was to him and the way he looked at her. You remember back in Abraham's time, in Genesis 12, he was about to enter Egypt and he said to Sarai, his wife, I know you're a woman of beautiful appearance. How nice of you, Abraham. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is my wife. Then they'll kill me but they'll let you live. So you're going to have to call yourself my sister, which in that case could have meant she would have been violated. But he was saving himself. He cared more about himself than his own wife. As if that wasn't enough. Later in Genesis 20, it says of Abraham, he sojourned in Gerar, the same region. Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, 
said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream and said, you are a dead man because you've taken her. Then Abimelech calls Abraham and said, what have you done? Why have you sinned against, why have we sinned against you like this that you would do this? Now we fast forward to Isaac, verse six of our passage. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of this place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife. Again, Abimelech called Isaac, said, behold, she's your wife. How would you say she's my sister? You would have brought this guilt upon us. Abraham counted himself more important than his wife. And despite God's intention that he lay himself down for his wife, if need be, instead he opted to put all the risk on her well-being. Isaac certainly saw and did the same thing. You know, how we treat our wives as husbands is largely how our sons will treat their wives. How we treat our mothers is how our sons will treat our wives. I mean, would someone really argue against that if you look at how it works? We see it here, obviously, in the case of Isaac and Abraham. Also, they experience an unrest with those around them. Now, some of that is just because these were people who had different faith. But some of it's just the way they handle themselves with those people. Now, in the case of Abraham, he had no choice in some cases, but he was at unrest consistently with the people around him. He had to make war against the northern kings in order to rescue Lot. And then you see after when the king of Sodom came and tried to give him some kind of payment for rescuing, uh, he refused it because he knew that there was a necessary disconnect with him and the people in the land. Some of that just has to happen. But later when he lies, instead of trusting God in Genesis 20 to the Philistines, he makes the statement, there's no fear of God at all in this place. I mean, he didn't fear God when he lied, but he thought the fear of God was even less existent in the lives of the Philistines. Abraham's negotiation for Sarah's tomb revealed that the Hittites didn't really want him there. There's an unrest. Now we come to Isaac, and there's this constant sense of the Philistines being envious and not wanting Isaac there. That's difficult to live in a place where you own no land and the people around you don't like you. It says Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. So God's blessing him in the backyard of the Philistines. He became very wealthy. Verse 14, he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Go away from us. You are much mightier than we. So he's experiencing this lack of welcome to say the very least. And then all these battles happen when they start digging the wells for water. The people of God will have tension with the world around them. It does not mean that we shouldn't try to get along in so far as we don't violate what God's called us to. We should try to live peaceably. That's exactly what Paul says when he writes to the Romans. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, in the case of Abraham and then Isaac, God gives some rest to them. God gives blessings to them. God showers out things upon them they don't deserve. Think of just a few of these. God appears to Abraham seven different times. Seven times he appears in some form or fashion by a theophany and speaks directly to Abraham. Now we come to Isaac, twice in this passage. Verse 2, the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Then 
later in the chapter, from there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him in the same night and said to him, I am the God of Abraham, your father. He repeats the words of the covenant, the covenant of God's grace to Abraham. He speaks directly this great blessing. But also, he blesses him materially. Abraham was very rich in livestock, it says. Here, Isaac, verse 12 of our passage. Isaac sowed and reaped a hundredfold. Verse 13, the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Despite not deserving any of this, God gives Isaac all of these things. Also, God specifically and intentionally renews the covenant. Genesis 12 The words of the covenant, I will bless you and make your name great. I will make you a blessing to the nations. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. All the earth will be blessed because of you. And then to Isaac in verse 3, I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to your father. He says, this oath to Abraham is now yours. You are the heir of the covenant. He also gives them rest from his enemies. He gave Abraham rest for times, and he gives Isaac some rest. Verse 29, a covenant's made with Philistia, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. It even says at verse 31, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. So there was an ongoing angst or hostility that continued. God provided temporarily but peace from enemies. When we conclude chapter 26, we just note a few things. Isaac was a sinful believer. You could say he was a believing sinner, just like us. So are we. God keeps his covenant promises from one generation to the next, even with the reality of father like father like son. Divine favor is a gift. None of us deserve this. Grace is God's undeserved favor because of Christ. Isaac received God's favor because of Christ, who God would bring forth from Isaac. Because of God's commitment to bring Christ, Isaac received the blessings because of Christ. We receive divine favor from God because of Christ's advocacy for us. It's the same message of God's gracious gospel that can be found in every page of the scripture. If not explicitly, it's the backdrop of the whole story of God's redemption. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your holy word and for its intricacies and its details even. Even a chapter like this that sets up what's coming, uh, we can see there laden uh, your gospel. We can see your promises. We can see your work in an undeserving sinner's life. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be convicted by what we see unfold between Abraham and then to Isaac, that we as parents would recognize some of the lessons that are also laden in a secondary form, no doubt, but there for us to see with the children of Isaac and the children of Abraham. We see it in our own lives. Help us, oh Lord. We know that we are sinners and we are faulty and that we make these mistakes and we sin. I pray, O Lord, that you give us humility to trust in you, to confess those sins, to recognize our need for you. Lord, I pray that you would shower your blessings upon us through the covenant of grace that you have fulfilled in our Savior Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Let's together respond.